0: Well good morning. My name's Mariana. in case I haven't had a chance to meet you, and I think the Applegates have been waiting at least three years for this adoption, maybe a little bit longer than that, and we'll be talking about waiting, but Alice did a great job of kicking us off on our December series last week, talking about the idea of Advent, which is all about waiting. And if you didn't have a chance to hear her message or if you simply want the opportunity to really get a good um, bird's-eye view of God's love story with humanity through the lives and the words of the prophets, you should ask her for her notes. I don't think she'd mind. It's worth studying them um, in in more detail than you can do in a Sunday morning service. But she explained that Advent means the coming of something. And so I know some of us really eagerly wait for the coming of a new model of smartphone, (laughs) or a new video game, or a new movie in a series that we really like, or maybe if there's a musical artist you really like and... You know other fans. You'll tell them, did you know he has a a new song coming out December 15th? And and you know the date, right? And you're waiting for it. And that's the concept of Advent. And throughout the development of Christianity, as particularly the Catholic Church went into different cultures and different countries, if there was a concept that the people already understood and had some kind of tradition for, we tended to just go ahead and adapt that to the truths that we were trying to teach. And one of those is the advent wreath and the advent concept. Originally people were waiting for the end of the winter and I can relate this week for the coming back of the sun, the, the, like the bright sun, the shining heat producing sun. And that's what, where the wreath came from but we started using it to symbolize as Alice demonstrated the circle of God's love and I'm going to give you another um, description of that circle. But last week, we started with the first candle, which was the candle of hope. And we'll talk about hope again today, and you'll see we have two candles lit this week. And Alice also mentioned that Advent is the root word for adventure, which it's a cool word. What do you think of when you think of adventure? Do you think of words like boring Predictable, safe, tell me some, some words that come up when you think of the word, if I say we're going on an adventure, spontaneous, scary, fun, exciting, and see people have two different needs, all of us, competing needs, one is for safety and security and predictability, to know what's going to happen, to have some sense of control, But the other is to have a sense of excitement and surprise and something new. And the balance is different for each one of us. I have a lot more risk tolerance and tolerance for ambiguity than some people. I also tend to really, really, really want to know what's coming next. And many of us who've been victims and victims of something for chronic periods of time, chronic in a chronic way, have that need to know what's coming next, to know that it's not something dangerous coming at me. And so we have these very legitimate needs, and we end up finding really weird ways to meet those needs. But I can tell you that the adventure of a life with God really meets both of them. And I want to ask, you don't need to answer this out loud, but I want to ask what do we expect from our meetings when we come here on a Sunday? What do we expect as a group? What do we expect as individuals? Not what are you hoping for, because that's different. And I know some people are hoping to see the person they have a crush on. Some people are hoping somebody will take them to lunch. Some people are hoping to get a little bit of encouragement because they've had a really rough week or a really rough life and they're hoping to leave here more encouraged than they came in. But what are you expecting? I've discovered the writings of a guy named Andrew Murray. He lived and taught a hundred, maybe a little over a hundred years ago. And people in those days, especially scholars and politicians, philosophers, religious teachers, if you've read their writings, they tend to be really flowery and use big words and too many words. And I, I just don't connect very well with that. I understand that I have high reading comprehension. That's not the point. It just doesn't turn me on. But when I started reading this guy's work, he talks like Jesus talked, or he writes that way, um, in a simple, direct way. And so I I went through a 31-day devotional that he wrote called Waiting on God because I'm not very good at waiting. Wait is a four-letter word. (laughs) But God has a different idea of waiting, and so I thought, okay, I, I should give myself the opportunity to grow. And one of the days he talks about, he pulls out a scripture from Isaiah 25. Now, Isaiah is the time when people are still waiting for the Savior, the Messiah, to come. Isaiah 25, 9, And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And it's a lot like the Applegates, who can tell you, This is Griffin, and we have waited for him. Notice that it's said twice in that one verse. He also talks about a story out of Acts chapter 10, talking about Cornelius and Peter. If you're not familiar with it, Cornelius was a guy who was not even Jewish. He was a high-ranking Roman official. But he was a man who believed in God and who was very generous to people. And this concept of generosity will come up again. And God was aware of him, even if he wasn't Jewish, Guess what? God was still aware of him. And he had a vision, an experience of an angel coming to him and telling him, Hey, God has heard your prayer. And so you need to send somebody to this town, to this street, to this house, because there's a guy named Peter who's there for just a couple of days, and he's going to have something to say to you from God. So he sent somebody. Peter had also had a vision or a dream, so he comes. Normally Peter would have nothing to do with the unwashed masses don't want to get contaminated when you're all holy and stuff that's a joke and so Peter shows up and says hey I'm here because God showed me that I I shouldn't call you people unclean he loves you too so what's up and Cornelius says well we are gathered here and there was a huge crowd at his house in the presence of God to see what you will say So here's a man who hadn't been raised with Jewish teachings, and yet he believed he and his family and his friends were in the presence of God. Now, if I'm in the presence of you, what does that mean about you? Where are you? You're here too, right? So they believed God was present. And some amazing things happened that day. And I wonder, do we believe God is here? And do we really expect him to make himself known? So this is what this devotional has to say. In some time of trouble, the hearts of the people had been drawn together. And they had, ceasing from all human hope or help, with one heart set themselves to wait for their God. Is this not just what we need in our churches and conventions and prayer meetings? He's saying this a hundred years ago. I suggest that's still true today. Would not united waiting upon God for the supply of his spirit most certainly seem the needed blessing? We cannot doubt it. The object or the goal, the object of a more definite waiting upon God in our gatherings would be very much the same as in personal worship. Uh Uh-oh. I'm supposed to be doing this on my own too. It would mean a deeper conviction that God must and will do all. It would require a more humble and abiding entrance into our deep helplessness and the need of entire and unceasing dependence upon him. We need a more living consciousness that the essential thing is to give God his place of honor and of power. We must have a confident expectation that to those who wait on him, God will, by his spirit, give the secret of his acceptance and presence And then, in due time, the revelation of his saving power. And so often, I don't care if you've been in church your whole life, we still haven't discovered the secret of his acceptance or his salvation, let alone be expecting his power to show up. The great aim would be to bring everyone in a praying and worshiping company under a deep sense of God's presence, So that when they part, there will be the consciousness of having met God himself, of having left every request with him, and of now waiting in stillness while he works out his salvation. And I probably have greater expectations of God than the average person when it comes to a Sunday service. But I'm not fully there that I expect every person to leave having experienced God himself and having been able to lay everything at his feet and walk out expecting him to take care of things. So that when they part, there will be the consciousness of having met God himself, of having left every request with him, and of now waiting in stillness while he works out his salvation. It is this, alas, that is too much missed in our meetings for worship. The godly minister has no more difficult, no more solemn, No more blessed task than to lead his people out to meet God. That's the teacher, that's also the worship leader. And it's an interactive thing. I think too many people show up expecting to passively receive inspiration or teaching or a new perspective. And that's not how learning works. It's not how discipleship works. It's not how discovery works. Can you imagine if I said, we're going to have this great adventure. I'm going to go, and I'm going to do all these exciting things, and then I'll come back and tell you about it, and you'll feel like you were there. I'm going to show you pictures on a PowerPoint. woo Right? It's not how it works. And so to the degree that we engage is how much we get out of it. A few years ago, I was teaching public speaking to graduate students, and one of the other members of our teaching team said, oh, wait, does that mean that now when I'm up there, you're critiquing and analyzing everything I'm doing. I said no. I come expecting that God's going to say something to me. I don't know if it's going to be through a song or a prayer or the teaching itself, but I come expecting there's something for me to hear today, something for that God wants to communicate. That's what I'm listening for. I'm not counting how many times you say um the way I do with my public speaking students, you know. That's that's just not my expectation. What's yours? And so he repeats what Cornelius said. We are now here in the presence of God. He says, the teacher must bring people out to meet God, and before he preaches, he must bring each one into contact with him. We are now here in the presence of God. These words of Cornelius show the way in which Peter's audience was prepared for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Waiting before God, waiting for God, and waiting on God are the conditions of God showing his presence. And so Andrew Murray puts us a goal for our meetings, a company of believers gathered with the one purpose, helping each other by little intervals of silence to wait on God alone, opening the heart for whatever God may have, whatever he may have to tell us or to show us. And so we're going to do that occasionally today is to pause and just give you and God a chance to connect. That's why you have the notepapers, so you can write those things down. Not so much for the lesson, but feel free to doodle or write whatever you want. So let's start now with a prayer. And Lord, what, what you're asking seems beyond any human being to be <clears throat> to be able to bring people into a place where they can experience your presence, and your acceptance. You're rescuing from whatever we're trapped in and your power visible to us and working through us. So I ask God that you would do that work now, that you would open each heart, that you would take away whatever distractions or fears would interfere with that process that each person would come at least one step closer to knowing you, to having experienced you here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So did you know that while we're waiting on God, that he's also waiting on us? This is another devotional from Andrew Murray, where he pulls from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. It says, And therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. That's fascinating to me. The Lord is a God of judgment, but he is waiting so that he can be merciful and gracious towards us. There was a time, my kids are adults now, but when they were at a certain age, where it really felt to me like the only value they saw in me was as an ATM dispensing cash and a chauffeur giving rides. That wasn't the complete truth, but that's just how it felt. And I had other things to offer them, but they didn't have the time or the space or the inclination for it, you know. Whether it was words of wisdom or anything else, that wasn't what they were interested in. And it makes it hard to have an intimate relationship. I'm not saying they were bad kids. They were just at a certain age, you know. They were at a certain development stage. And so there was a lot more I could have offered them, but that they weren't ready for or they weren't interested in. But I was waiting till the day came when I could share that with them. And that's a picture of God also waiting for us. Not waiting to judge us, beat us over the head, throw us into the pit, but waiting to be generous, to be merciful. And Andrew Murray says, we must not only think of our waiting upon God, but also what is more wonderful still of God's waiting upon us. The vision of him waiting on us. Do you have a vision of that, of God waiting on you? For me, it's the the story of the prodigal and the father standing there with his arms wide open while the son is still far off just because the sun has turned and is heading towards him again. That's my vision, because I visualize things. But the vision of God waiting on us will give new impulse and inspiration to our waiting upon him. This is Murray again. It will give us an unspeakable confidence that our waiting cannot be in vain. If he waits for us, then we may be sure that we are more than welcome and that he rejoices to find those he has been seeking for. Therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. Look up and see the great God upon his throne. He is love, an unceasing and inexpressible desire to communicate his own goodness and blessedness to all his creatures. He longs and delights to bless. He has inconceivably glorious purposes concerning every one of his children by the power of his Holy Spirit to reveal in them his love and power. He waits with all the longings of a father's heart. He waits that he may be gracious unto you. And each time you come to wait upon him or seek to maintain in daily life the holy habit of waiting, I guess it's not a four-letter word, you may look up and see him ready to meet you. He will be waiting so that he may be gracious unto you. And so, here's a good question. If I'm waiting on God, And he's waiting on me. Why doesn't he just answer my prayer already? Why do you have to wait three years for a kid? Or 20 years for the answer to some other prayer? What's up with that? Well, Andrew Murray has an answer. He says, the giver is more than the gift. God is more than the blessing. And our being kept waiting on him is the only way for for learning to find our life And joy in Himself. If He immediately gave me everything I wanted or thought I needed, He would become just another ATM to me. I wouldn't find joy in Him because I would be too conditioned to be waiting for the handout. Oh, if God's children only knew what a glorious God they have and what a privilege it is to be linked in fellowship with Him, then they would rejoice in Him even when He keeps them waiting. And he talks about how a queen has ladies-in-waiting, and they're servants. I mean, essentially that's what they are. But I hadn't thought about this before. They're also some of the few people that are allowed into the queen's bedroom, that are allowed into the queen's home, that are there when the queen's crying or when the queen's rejoicing, that see the queen's newborn baby when it comes out. And so there's a privilege there, even though they're servants waiting upon the queen. Yes, it is blessed when waiting soul and awaiting God meet each other. God cannot do his work without his and our waiting his time. Let waiting be our work as it is his. And the idea is that if he hasn't shown up, there's a reason and it probably has to do with our own preparation and our own expectation and our readiness. My son Rick is turning 30 this week, and when he was about 11, his dad got a red Camaro. You can imagine an 11-year-old boy's reaction to a red Camaro. It was almost as extreme as his mother's reaction to it. Anyway, I was only clocked during 100, The cop didn't actually give me a ticket because God was waiting to show himself merciful. But as soon as he saw that car, he said, hey, Dad, when I'm 16 and I have a driver's license, can I have that car? And his dad said, yeah, sure, thinking he wouldn't remember. (laughs) Yeah, so when he was 16 and a half, he gotten his driver's license, he was working at Fiesta, Texas, making money for gas and insurance, and he got the red Camaro. Now, was that because we were mean that we didn't just give him the keys when he was 11? He wasn't ready for it. He would have trashed it. He could have killed himself. There's more to the story, but I won't go there on account of time. It was love on our part, not handing him the keys at 11. So back to Advent. Waiting eagerly for something to come. The light of the candles represent the power and the presence of God in our lives. And it's expressed in four different ways. There's four candles and one in the middle. The first week, the first candle was hope, particularly the hope of the prophets. And Alice defined hope as a holy seed. I love that picture. A holy seed. Maybe you can't see much yet, but it's there, waiting to bloom. So week two, the second week in Advent, is the mercy candle. And it reminds us of the light and mercy that God extended through the birth and the ministry of John the Baptist. You can read about this in the first chapter of Luke. He tells us, during the time when Herod was king of Judea, There was a Jewish priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Okay, I want to stop right there. It was a Jewish priest. That means he came from a long line of Jewish priests. Guess what? Elizabeth came from the same family line. So we've basically got two preacher's kids times a 1,000. So think about the expectations of them from the people around them. The next verse says, They were righteous in God's eyes. Interesting. In God's eyes, they were righteous. Hmm. wonder what the community thought. They were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both very old. And you need to understand for a first century woman to be barren in that culture, it wasn't just a disappointment not to minimize that. But it indicated that somebody had sinned, and God was mad at them. So here you got a priest and his wife who comes from a family of priests, and they've done something really bad because God won't bless them with children. I mean, it's obvious. Evidence is right there. So imagine her going through her whole life with that. Imagine being a doctor who can never cure a patient. Imagine being a a pilot who can never fly a plane. What kind of disgrace does that bring? And so Luke goes on to tell us that God showered them with mercy and allowed Elizabeth, though she was old, to become pregnant and give birth to a son. And here's Elizabeth's reaction. How kind the Lord is to take away my disgrace of having no children. Now, they weren't disgraced in God's eyes, right? God saw them as righteous but in the community they were. And later on you see the community saying, oh, isn't this nice of God? Isn't this merciful of God to let them have a child? That son son was John the Baptist and was going to prepare the way for Jesus' coming. And his father, Zechariah, I'm shortening the story, prophesied this of John at his birth. You, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give life to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. This is really the beginning of anybody knowing that the Savior's coming was imminent. This is the first pronouncement. I doubt people got it. Okay, But this is the first newsflash. And it starts with, because of God's tender mercy. That's what starts. The end of the sentence is, to guide us to the path of peace. And that's peace in our relationship with God, peace in our relationship with each other, peace in our relationship with ourselves. Okay, so that was Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 79 out of, out of the NIV. Okay, so in our case, the Savior has already come, right? A couple thousand years ago. We're not waiting for him to show up, right? So what's the point of learning about waiting? This whole Advent thing. Okay, back to Andrew Murray. Now that the consolation of Israel has come, that the redemption has been accomplished, do we still need to wait? We do indeed. But will not our waiting, who look back to it, has come, looking back, I mean, the Savior's already come, Will not our waiting differ greatly from those who looked forward to it as coming? It will, especially in two aspects. We now wait on God in the full power of the redemption, and we wait for its full revelation. Christ said, in that day you will know that you are in me. Abide in me. Our waiting differs too in this, that while they waited for a redemption to come, we see it as accomplished and now wait for its revelation in us. Yes, we're also waiting for his return, but we're waiting, I hope, and expecting his power to show up in our lives, his character to show up in our lives. As we maintain our place in Christ day by day, God waits to reveal Christ in us in such a way that he is formed in us, that his mind and disposition and likeness acquire form and substance in us so that by each it can in truth be said, Christ lives in me. It occurred to me that coming on a Sunday and not expecting something, something special, something more than lunch, it's kind of like a man that's going to the doctor, and so he parks his car, there's a parking meter, it needs coins, it's not one of the fancy new ones, and so he sees he's parked in front of a bank. So he goes into the bank to get changed for a dollar, right, for the parking meter. And because of all the new regulations, they have to see ID. Okay, fine. He shows his ID. And they say, oh, Mr. Johnson, we're so glad you came in. Our bank manager has been searching everywhere for you. In fact, he had a meeting with us this morning making sure all of the tellers knew if you walked in, even though you're not an account holder, he needed to talk to you. Apparently, there's some inheritance. Some, somebody who was a member of this bank left you this big inheritance. Please please wait. Let us get the manager. And can you imagine the guy saying, uh, I just came in for change. Thanks, but no thanks. I, I got to go. I got an appointment in 15 minutes. And maybe there's a million dollars waiting for him. Wouldn't that be a shame? Let's take, stretch it a little further. What if the guy's going to the doctor because he's facing organ failure he is heading towards death and the relative that he didn't know about that left him an inheritance also died in order to be able to leave the organs for him maybe he needs a heart and lung transplant and you've got to die to give those up right and so here's the answer to his problem plus a million dollars but he's saying I just came in change? Just want to change your dollar. See ya. Wouldn't that be a shame? And that's what's heartbreaking to me about people having such little expectation of God or Christianity or even a meeting, meeting like this. Okay, so what is God's expectation of our journey with him? I wonder about that. What's awesome is that he has invited us to partner with him it's this great book called The Colors of Hope, Becoming People of Mercy, Justice, and Love. The author is Richard Dahlstrom, The Colors of Hope. If you act quick, you can buy it from Amazon for less than two bucks. I looked. And he talks about how being a pastor for 25 years was, involved things he didn't expect. I mean, he had all these plans, and then he found out it was really about meeting people in their messes. And so for 25 years, he's been doing this. And he says, these conversations in my own study of the Bible have reshaped my understanding of what it means to be Christ followers. I began my faith journey thinking we were lawyers on a mission. We understood the legal status of humanity as condemned and could explain with great precision why Christ's deity, humility, death, and resurrection could change our sentence in spite of our guilt. While that legal element remains foundational and important, I've come to discover that our calling is less lawyer, more artist. And you've heard me talk before about how my favorite of all the descriptions of God, my favorite is of him as the master artist. And he says that we're his work of art. But see, on top of that, he calls us to partner with him as artists. He says, each of us is endowed by our creator through the gift of Christ's life with the capacity to impart great gifts of beauty in this world. Blessed to be a blessing is how God said it to Abraham. And since we're in his great big family as followers of Christ, his calling is our calling. There are particular offerings of beauty, good works, Paul calls them in his letter to the Ephesians, that we are invited to share with our world. We are, in other words, artists. This way of seeing my calling, of seeing our calling, has made all the difference. Becoming a faith artist is an invitation to joy, creativity, and profound adventure. Unfortunately, the tide of faith culture pushes away from art toward law. The first section in the book addresses these issues of identity because until I see myself as an artist, I'll never get on with the work of painting the colours of God's good reign on my world. Let the adventure begin. That's a great way to open a book. So this is our first pause. I want to give us a minute to get in touch with what is your identity. If somebody asks me about my husband and says, who's David? There's a way I describe him. I could describe him as a man, as a father, as an American. So if you were describing yourself, what's the main word that comes to mind? And I think of, we will pause honest. I think of um, the tradition of, in certain support groups, of saying something along the lines of, "I'm Mariana and I'm an alcoholic," identifying with that, and I understand that there's a purpose for that, and for the purpose to recognize their condition. But at some point, I'd rather see myself as a recovering alcoholic. That would become my identity. And so, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Okay, that's a wonderful, awesome thing, and it's a historical fact. But that is not my identity according to the Bible, unless I'm reading it way wrong. So let's take a minute and get in touch with, what is it? Maybe you know better, but still you identify with, and write it down. Lord, I ask for you to come and to edit that concept of who we think we are, who the core of ourselves is. I ask you to come and bring truth to our understanding and to our heart, to release us from all of the curses and the bad programming spoken against your truth. If you have swapped lives with Jesus, then you have swapped identities with him. You are a faith artist in partnership with the ultimate artist. And so the book talks about painting pictures of hope. And here's the job description for a faith artist. It's my own, basically, life verse out of Micah six eight, New King James Version. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Some of the newer translations want to be more correct because it doesn't mean man as though you must be of the male gender. It means man as humanity. So the newer translations say, He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And I'm I, sorry I don't connect with that. I would say, dude, but the message says it this way. But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. For some reason, some people who call themselves Christians think the job description is holy diva. and It's not what this says. So what does it mean, and I'll invite feedback here, to love mercy, to do works of mercy, to show God's mercy to the needy? What do you think of when you hear about something like that? What kind of activities? We're going to go do some acts of mercy this weekend. What would we be doing? To walk in forgiveness, you might forgive someone. Okay. Mercy in general means giving something to somebody that they didn't earn. When I get a paycheck, that's not mercy. I earn that. Okay. Forgiveness can be something somebody doesn't deserve or didn't earn. What else? What, what did we do in the last few weeks with these shoe boxes? Anybody? I mean, you're nodding as though we can all read each other's thoughts, but (laughs) not all of us are good at that. What did we do with shoeboxes? Seriously. We packed up Christmas gifts for children overseas. Did those kids do anything to earn those gifts? Oh. So we think of things like giving charitably, whether it's writing a check or packing a shoebox of gifts. What else? Blessing people who irritate us or do us wrong. Still being nice to them or giving them something or helping them. Or Or praying for them. Yeah. Praying for them. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. When we've gone to feed breakfast to people at Haven for Hope. That's an example of works of mercy. I want to read you a passage from the message Version of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 12 through 15. Carrying out this social relief work, that's some of what we're talking about. Carrying out this social relief work involves far more than helping meet the bare needs of poor Christians. It also produces abundant and bountiful thanksgiving to God. This relief offering is a prod to live at your very best showing your gratitude to God by being openly obedient to the plain meaning of the message of Christ. You show your gratitude through your generous offerings to your needy brothers and sisters and really toward everyone. Meanwhile, moved by the extravagance of God in your lives, they'll respond by praying for you in passionate intercession for whatever you need. Thank God for this gift, his gift. No language can praise it enough. So here's the circle. God is merciful to you, and you're grateful for that. So you do something to help somebody else, and they're grateful for that and see God in your life, and they're grateful for you, and so they pray for you. And so God is praised, and you are blessed, and you are grateful, and you become a blessing, and somebody else is blessed, and they are grateful, and they pray for you. And see the circle? That's mercy. Now, whether they ever do anything for you or not, that's not the point. The point is that it's not just, okay, every year at Christmas I do two shoeboxes, and once a month I write a check to some charity. It's supposed to be a life of gratitude to God. That's what works of mercy are supposed to be. And so what gets in the way of our being merciful, of our forgiving, of our being kind to people who are worse than annoying? You probably know that Nelson Mandela passed away this week at age 95. You may also know that he spent close to 30 years in prison. During those 30 years, his people were still being oppressed and abused. His own wife and little girls were being hounded, and there was nothing he could do to help them. This is what he said, I always knew that deep down in every human heart there is mercy and generosity. No one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Even in the grimmest times in prison, when my comrades comrades and I were pushed to the limits, I would see a glimmer of humanity in one of the guards, perhaps just for a second, but it was enough to reassure me and keep me going. Man's goodness is a flame that can be hidden but never extinguished. He also said, as I walked out the door when he was finally released from prison, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. And that attitude was crucial to the future of that nation. And so we come to the concept of forgiving people who have hurt us. And maybe even forgiving the God that allowed it to happen. And I know that's not easy. Let's show video number one. Some of you may remember in the 90s the genocide in Rwanda. This will be just two minutes. It's important to know that the people that killed each other, were friends and neighbors. They worshiped together at church one Sunday, praising God, and then got their machetes and chopped each other up a week later. It's important to know that it wasn't an occupying force. If they tell you that a murderer has been released in the neighborhood, how would you feel? In this time we weren't releasing one, we were releasing 40,000. Might want to lower lights. When you consider a million people all got destroyed at the hands of their neighbours. When you get one million people dead, it becomes impossible to exert justice. The president of Rwanda passed a decision to release the perpetrators who had confessed their role in genocide. So far, 50,000 have been released. Why on earth should a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda forgive somebody who murdered Either their mother or husband or brother or sister. I have a was in Mom Saza. Somebody has to tell them this painful message of forgiveness. I could give Mutima and If we let them be consumed by that ongoing bitterness and anger, it's like an acidic content in a metro container. It will eventually eat the container up. When they forgive, they get released. We have rebuilt the roads, we have rebuilt the schools. Rebuilt their hospitals are rebuilding the hearts of people remain a big challenge. Are you crazy? Reconciliation? The one who your How do I reconcile with someone who killed my family? Forgiveness is not human, it's divine. I want to take. Some time now, another pause. For you to ask God, who do you need to forgive? It may be somebody that you thought you'd forgiven. What kind of bitterness has grown a deep root in your heart, and now it's, as He said, acidic content in a metal container, eating you up. And the only way to go forward is to dump it out, whether they deserve it or not. What do you need to leave behind so that you're not stuck in prison? I have very rarely in my life had someone ask me for forgiveness. Most of the time the transaction has been on my end. I have asked for forgiveness. Sometimes I got it. Sometimes I didn't. It's not always um, the indicated thing for you to leave here now and call somebody and say, hey, you know how you were a really lousy husband for 20 years? Well, I forgave you. You know, that's that's not necessary. But how hard would it be if you were face-to-face with the person? Let's play video two. This is what they had to do to go forward as a country. There was no way to pay the debt. You couldn't keep all these people in prison long enough and even if you did, how does that pay back murdering your whole family and burning your village down? And so there were a group of faith artists who helped people learn both how to seek forgiveness and how to give forgiveness. That's how they were painting the pictures of hope. Pictures of hope for individuals, for families, for villages, and then for a whole country. That's the adventure. And it might not sound like the kind of fun that a roller coaster ride will bring. But it does have both components. It certainly has that component of risk and of the reward of seeing these people freed, freed from their guilt and freed from their bitterness. It's amazing to me that God would invite us to partner in that. And what's even more unbelievable to me, ununderstandable is that he gives us a choice. I still don't get that one. If I was making people, I wouldn't give them a choice. You know, that was one of the hardest things to learn as a parent, that my kids had a choice. I would have preferred to take some choices away so they wouldn't feel the pain of the consequences. James chapter 3 from the message Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings. Not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. That is something... I believe that has to be taught and learned. And whatever has happened in your life, not to minimize it, but it probably doesn't begin to compare with what these people went through. It certainly doesn't compare with what Jesus went through. It can be done, but it has to be a divine work. But it requires our participation. Again, from the book, The Colors of Hope, this mercy, and he's talking about... um, of these people this mercy this loving kindness is deeply rooted in a kingdom not of this world in the midst of a world that carries pain and exacts retaliation the counselors of the reconciliation project in Rwanda had gone to great lengths to teach that Christ has taken both the perpetrator's sins and the victim's agony to the cross he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and it's true by his stripes we are healed And the main example of loving kindness, another word for mercy you might find in some translations, of giving somebody something they didn't earn is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of the good things we did, but because of his mercy. And I wanted to read it to you from the message, a little broader, broader context, so I'll go a few verses before and after. It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, dupes of sin, ordered every which way by our glands, going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God, our kind and loving Savior God, stepped in, he saved us from all that. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath, and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously. God's gift has restored our relationship with him and given us back our lives. And there's more life to come, an eternity of life. You can count on this. Back to Colors of Hope. This kind of beauty is just waiting to be born. And as we've seen, wherever it's born, its light is conspicuous. The darkness of revenge and bitterness has the vast majority of the world stuck in a cycle of violence and retaliation. And each net draws us further and further away from our calling as artisans of hope. Our rucksacks get weighed down with immense baggage as we hold on to bitterness over our absent parents or our divorced parents or our abusive uncle or our unfaithful spouse. All of this stuff is terribly painful and need not be minimized. But it's stuff that will destroy us unless we learn to let go of it and practice the lost art of loving kindness. It's a primary color intended to infuse everything we do as God reminds us when he tells us to be slow to anger and to avoid bitterness. And he talks about how we learn to practice forgiveness and that we need to drop labels. He says we need to drop the labels because when I label someone, I reduce them from who they are, a person created in God's image, to a one-dimensional creature defined by their crime or worldview or sexual orientation, or net worth, or political party. I'm going to pause again. And the question is, whom have I reduced to a label? What people, when I see them, it's the label that I see. We've got just one more step. The author of The Colors of Hope um, does his own uh, paraphrase of part of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he says. You've heard that it's important to stop sleeping around, but I'm telling you that it's important to stop treating women or men as objects who exist for your sexual pleasure, even if you only play that game in your mind. Conventional wisdom says that retaliation is the way to respond when wronged. This might be a way to respond, but it's not my way to respond. I'm telling you to love your enemies and to be generous with them, recognizing that I've blessed them with the gift of life just like I've blessed you. So if someone tries to take the shirt off your back, give them your coat too. Pour a little blessing on them in my name. This is how you paint pictures of hope. He says, by the end, it's as if Jesus has played a concerto of such stunning beauty that our attempts are revealed for what they are, at best the well-meaning efforts of little children. Sometimes even when I'm trying to be like Jesus, in comparison, it seems so small. He says, we think that by recycling or joining an organization or skipping lattes for a month and giving the money to charity or going to a concert to raise funds for famine in Africa, we're artisans of hope. And, of course, in a limited sense, that's true. But when we see Jesus' colors, hear his music, we realize there's more to it than simply giving up a bit from our abundance or just staying sober. He's calling us to a different level of artistry, a level we can only understand by walking humbly with God. And for me, that means understanding that it's God who's going to have to do it. I can't. I don't care how smart I am, how educated I am, how good I try to be, I can't do the things that this adventure calls me to, and that's not the plan. The plan is for God to do it through me. I just need to get out of the way. Okay, so let me review before we do the last part of our takeaway. Randy and Clara have been doing that with us, trying to have something that we can implement. I've been doing it throughout the the time we've had together. First, who in your life does God want to bless this week? Did I ask you about that? I don't think I asked you that one. That was the first one. Let's take some time now. Who in your life does God want to bless this week? And when I say in your life, I would not list my grandmother because she died almost 30 years ago. I would not list the president or the governor because even though I know who they are, they don't know me. Who in your life does God want to bless this week? What is it, we talked about this one, what is it about your identity in Christ that you need to refocus or relearn? Here's the last one. Is there some area where you need to accept God's forgiveness? Where you need to stop using that mistake or omission or whatever it was? That needs to stop disqualifying you from accepting your true identity as a child of God, a co-heir and co-ruler with Jesus, as God's work of art, and as a faith artist that has been invited to partner with God himself to paint pictures of hope out of the mess of human life. Where do you need to accept God's forgiveness? Some of that may have been stirred up today. And I hope you will think about this through the week, that you don't just check this time off your list. But that whoever God has shown you he wants to bless this week, that you ask, how do you want to bless them through me? And it may be by extending forgiveness. It may be by an act of service. But I hope you'll do that this week. And that you'll give God a chance to tell you what he really thinks of you. How he sees you, not how the crowd sees you or your family sees you or you see you. But how does he really see you? Remember Zachariah and Elizabeth. God saw them as righteous. They saw themselves as old. And the community saw them as disgraced. They must have sinned. As we close, I'm going to ask those who've been trained in prayer to um, gather around the wall that has the cross to be available to pray with people. This is also something that blows my mind, knowing that some of you are sick, some of you are depressed, some of you are in mourning, some of you are searching for an answer, Maybe you have a decision to make, and you're offered partnership, you're offered prayer, and yet, nah, I just came in to get changed for a dollar. So I hope you'll take advantage of the people who've invested their time and their lives into not only learning how to do this, but into being people who can do this, who've dumped out their own little buckets of acid in order for God to be able to work through them. I'm also going to ask the worship team to come up and play a song while you continue to meditate on this. And then we're dismissed and you can get the kiddos. Go have that lunch. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for how you see us. That I'm your precious little girl regardless. That when you invite us to adventure, it's not so we'll feel bad about all the things we haven't done right. It's so we'll jump on the train and go on the adventure to doing and being and speaking and singing these things that you want to pour through us. Lord, I ask that your presence and your power would come powerfully in the lives of each person now and throughout the week and that it would then pour out to the people around them.